Hey everybody, the BS Podcast is back. Sorry for the delay. We had HBO test shows for any given Wednesday, June 22nd. Today's episode of the BS Podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music. Other sites have the nasty habit of showing you lower prices and charging you huge fees at checkout. At SeatGeek, the price you see is always the price you pay. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Today's episode also brought to you by Harry's. Change your shaving experience for the better. With Harry's Starter Kit, it's just $15. That includes the Razor 3 Blades and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or Foaming Shave Gel. Get $5 off your first purchase with my coupon code BS. That's an entire month's worth of shaving for $10 with free shipping. Harry's.com. Coupon code BS. My new HBO show is called Any Given Wednesday. Again, it launches on Wednesday, June 22nd at 10 p.m. Set your DVRs now. Don't forget about After the Thrones on HBO Now. And don't forget about TheRinger.com. We launched last week on Wednesday. Columns, features, short posts, podcasts, you name it. Go to The Ringer. I even came out of retirement. I wrote a column, for God's sakes. It had been 13 months. A 13-month writing sabbatical, and then I came back. TheRinger.com. Check it out, please, for the love of God. And we're off. Yeah. Clear enough for you. All right. <laughs> 30 years ago on this day, the legend, Larry Bird, played his greatest game of all time. In my opinion, wasn't his greatest statistical game, but it was his greatest game. He put his imprint everywhere. The Celtics won the 1986 title. Shout out to the legend and shout out to the other legend, Malcolm Gladwell. How are you? I'm very well, Bill. You don't even remember that game. You're in Canada. You didn't have TV. You don't even <laughs> know what happened. Did you, did you? I read about it a week later in Sports Illustrated. <laughs> you read Jack McCallum's feature and you felt like you were there. Um, you're on my podcast corner. You launched a podcast. We're now I frenemies. Did. What's going on? We are. We are. Revisionist history. First episode drops next week. Ten episodes. One a week for ten weeks. First one starts on next Thursday. And you did this by yourself. You produced it yourself. You wrote everything yourself. Explain what the process was. I did it with uh, Panoply uh, Media, uh, which is with the, the guys at Slate. So I had... Um, I did most of the reporting myself, and then wrote all the scripts. And but I had a you know I had a whole team of uh, really good producers and people helping me out because um, this is new territory for me. But it was super fun. I mean, this is not like a podcast where like yours where you know you have people on in your chat. This is a, like this American Life kind of thing. Right. These are prepared, um, reported things. So explain it to me but, in one uh, sentence. Every episode goes back and picks a person episode, one episode, one thing, one one shows about a song, something from the past that I think has been forgotten or misunderstood. Okay. Kind of. So I have one, one episode about Rick Barry, your old friend. He's still mad at me. Went down to see. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I uh, he. You said that, and then I went and I reread the Rick Barry section thing you wrote in your book of basketball. Yeah, and you're incredibly nice to him. I 
mean, you where did you put him? You put him you put him in the top twenty, didn't you? Yeah, I think he was like twenty four, twenty five. Yeah, I mean. The whole thing I wrote was that he was this brilliant basketball player and it got overshadowed by everybody talking about like what he was like as a teammate and some of the yeah. turmoil he got in. But I, I tried to present both sides of the story but be really, really uh, fair about how great he was. I, I had this whole case about yeah. how he should have won the 1975 MVP. I think he finished fifth because the, yeah. the players voted on it. So they just... You know, they just boned him over. And that was one of the better individual years anyone's had in the last 40-plus years. So, yeah. Yeah. He, he's a really interesting guy. Yeah. I mean, and you get a sense of why he was a difficult personality because he's a perfectionist. Yeah. I mean, he refuses to sacrifice anything in the pursuit of, you know, playing the absolute best basketball that he can play, which is what I was talking about because... My show is all about why does no one ever, why do bad free throw show, uh, shooters um, not not experiment and not try and shoot them the way that Rick Barry shot them underhanded? And if you're a 50% free throw shooter and you're getting pulled at the end of games and you're leaving a million dollars a year on the table because that's a massive weakness in your game, why wouldn't you try to shoot it another way, right? And he's really interesting on that subject. Like if you're Dwight Howard or you're DeAndre Jordan, why on earth aren't you aren't you doing something to address this glaring weakness in your game, right? Yeah. I mean, if if, if DeAndre Jordan is an eighty-five percent shooter, he is in another level, right? right. From the, if he's from the line, he's all of a sudden he's a whole different player, and you play him differently, and you and he could. What would he make? What do you think? How much more do you think he could command on the open market if he was an eighty-five percent free throw shooter? Well, I think everybody is going to make a ridiculous amount of money with the way the cap went up, but I think yeah. it would change his ceiling as an impact guy because he's such a liability yeah. with the free throw shooting. And you look at like the defining game for him. I think was Game Seven of the Spurs series a year ago when the Clippers had to take him out the last six minutes. Like they just couldn't afford. Yeah to have him out there, which is really crazy because he was easily, you know, their most disruptive defensive player and the guy who protected the rim for them. And they were basically just like, you you can't play. And the, our whole season's on the line. I mean, you have to sit over there. You could say the same thing for Andre Drummond. I mean, there's all of these big men who are just, and all they have to do is fly to Colorado Springs <laughs> for like a month in the off season, knock on Rick Barry's door and say, Rick, I want to try the, in private. Let's try this, and if I can, if if I'm mildly better, you know, I'll I'm a, I'm all of a sudden commanding all this more money and next contract time. Well, That's all it takes, and they won't do it. When he played, I think Wilt tried it. Didn't a couple of people try it? Did he talk about that? Well, that's what yeah. That's what my show's all about. Yeah. Wilt in his greatest season, sixty-two shoots underhanded, and when he has his greatest game, the hundred-point game, and he shoots something like. 28 for 32 from the line. He's shooting underhanded. So Will tries it, is massively successful with it, has his greatest game greatest game ever in basketball with the underhander free throw, and then the next season goes back to shooting the old way and becomes a 50% shooter again. I mean, it I, just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, I think they, there was a little bit of a, I don't know, it wasn't like cool to shoot that way. People made fun of it. People, 
especially back then people that there was like a masculinity issue with it. And I think it got into some of those guys heads. I remember when you say, especially back then, I mean, there's still a masculinity issue with it, right? It's not, that's not past. It, it, there would be if the, unless Deandre Jordan went from 39% shooting to 78% shooting. And then people would be like, you know what? He figured this out. And it's weird. It's like, you think of all these other sports where people have made adjustments like, uh, yeah. I don't know, like the long putter is a good example. Mm-hmm. Like, say, it's, it's helps people putt. It doesn't look great. People use it. It works. Um, you would think the underhand free throw would would kind of be like the long putter of basketball. I'm amazed, like, one of these, one of these guys just hasn't brought it back just for the attention it would bring. Like, if Andre Drummond yeah. started doing it, it would put his career in a totally different light. He would be in, in mainstream conversations and... People would be talking about yeah. him. It would be kind of like it would be fun to watch if it made him better. I don't know. But where, by the way, where is, where is his coach? Why isn't his coach coming to him and saying, I got Forcing him to do Why it? Do you spend the... Yeah. Well, who is that is, what coaches are for? Who has done it in the last 30 years? Has there been anybody? Well, it, I don't even remember anybody in, doing it. In the college game, there's two guys. There's, uh, I can't pronounce his name. For Louisville, Anioko or any yeah. Niger- uh, Nigerian American kid. So the one guy, there's two people in college who try it. Canyon Barry, Rick's son, <laughs> shoots underhanded, and this guy Anioko, whose parents are from Nigeria. So essentially, the two conditions under which people Americans will shoot underhanded free throws is a if they are related to Rick Barry, or b if their parents are from Africa. Like that, that's wow. how far you have to go before you're willing to try a really good idea. Just think if Rick Barry had had an illegitimate kid in Africa, that kid would definitely be <laughs> shooting underhanded free throws. There'd be no question. Um, By the way, Canyon Barry, a fantastic free throw shooter. Yeah. Uh, have you been watching the finals? Do you have any weird Gladwell thoughts about uh, what you're seeing from the Warriors or the Cavs or anything? Anything that's jumping out at you? Uh, I thought... Well, I was, I will I mean, this is going to sound like the worst kind of, of, uh, after the fact, but I, I always thought that I never counted the, I, I thought the Warriors were fine against OKC. I figured, I always figured they were going to win. Really? I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that a team this good wasn't going to go all the way. I don't know. I was like, game six, somehow the, the, the impossibility of Game Six escaped me at the time. I just, this is my own naivete. Yeah, I was like, well, of course they're going to go off in one of the games. So they went off. So Clay Thompson. I mean, the whole point of that team is that in any ten-game stretch, they're going to have two games where one of their shooters goes crazy. So yeah. they had one of those games, right? Um, and maybe I'm being. I think I'm being naive. But I was like, I was a little ho hum during <laughs> during Game Six. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That was like a weird historical anomaly game. And if you replayed it a hundred times, it's never, you're never going to come with the same result. I've, been, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I can't remember a non-Boston game that I've, I've spent wasted more time just thinking about and trying to figure out what it meant because I was convinced Oklahoma City was going to win. In fact, the last podcast that I did... And we had to take like a like a twelve day break because we were doing test shows and just got swallowed up. But the last podcast I did was basically centered around the theme: what the why why OKC is going to win Game Six, 
And yeah. I talked about it with my buddy House for almost the entire podcast. And the one thing that I said was, it's not a lock because either Curry or Thompson or both can just go crazy and make a bunch of threes. But OKC is better. And the only way Golden State can beat them in this game is if they just have this crazy shooting night. And it was exactly what happened. It was 17. Yeah. They had to make 17 threes to get out of there. Um to put that in perspective, like I wrote, I wrote this in my ringer piece last week. Like I think the warrior, I think the rockets and the Celtics, um, 30 years before, I think they made like 15 threes combined in the whole series, you know? So to me, it's like, it's this dramatic game that you talk about this revolution that we've had in basketball this decade with the way the game has changed fundamentally. Um, the shooting, the three-point line, how people behave on fast breaks, the spacing, the type of players that play, the fact that somebody like Roy Hibbert is suddenly almost obsolete with how with the way the game has gone, and everything crested yeah. in that game. Because under any other model of basketball, Oklahoma City wins in six. And in the new current 2016 model, there was a way for Golden State to win that game. And I don't think they should have. I think Oklahoma City was better. But that doesn't mean they were actually better. Does that make sense? Like, Golden State, yeah. as you said, the great thing about them, the awesome thing that is going to make them the back-to-back champs is that it's just really hard in a seven-game series to avoid those one or two games where they just go nuts. And they were just yeah. due. It was yeah. law of averages. It was like, it was almost like Philly winning the lottery. Like, they didn't win last year. They didn't get Towns. But they won this year. And it's like at some point, if if you have 30 to 35% odds over and over again, you're going to hit. And it was like game yeah. six, it just hit. Clay was due. He, they kept rolling the dice. And they and it's like, oh, there's a seven. Here's Clay. And and that's what happened. And But I still can't totally wrap my head around it. Yeah. Do I sound well, incoherent? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be really interesting to hear, um, is it Haralabos? Haralabob, yeah. Haralabob. By the way, it took me a long time to accept the fact that he was real, because he, he sounds exactly like the kind of person you would make up. Like, if I would ask you to come up with a, a kind of uh, imaginary alter ego, it would be Haralabob. Yeah, like, my Canadian, like my Canadian gambling alter <laughs> ego? He spends his entire life watching basketball, gambling huge sums of money, Hanging out with supermodels, and you know, making and he has no fixed address, and he's from Winnipeg. I mean, the whole thing is just. I mean, it's not. It's like it's like you wouldn't. It's fiction. <laughs> so I actually, I actually Googled him after hearing him on the podcast a couple times. I was like, oh, yeah, actually, I think he does exist. This is not just some Simmons hoax. I know. I was I was actually excited to meet him and do a podcast with him in person because I I had the same thoughts you had. I was like, it's not. I'm not. I'm 99% sure this is a real person, but this guy's too good to be true. The, Cana- the Canadian gambler who sits courtside and hangs out with supermodels. I was like, is that this person? It's not just Canada. Yeah. Bill, as, a, as a Canadian, like, see, it's more specific than that. It's Winnipeg. Right. Like Winnipeg, do you understand that Winnipeg is like, uh, North Dakota is like Paris compared to Winnipeg. Winnipeg is so far off the beaten track. But it's also this incredibly fascinating city where all kinds of really, really interesting people emerge from it. Yeah. Because to, you know, it's, it's sort, of, it sort of makes sense that he's from Winnipeg. I'm kind of fascinated with Winnipeg. Neil you know, Young is from Winnipeg. 
I don't know if I ever okay. told you this, but I've been to Winnipeg. Have you really? Yeah, that when I like the first year I was at ESPN before I had enough sway to stop them from making me do stuff like this, they sent me to Winnipeg to write a piece about the season on the brink movie, which was like the first ESPN movie. And I went to Winnipeg and it was like minus seven and minus 35 wind chill. And I, you know, I'm from the East coast. I lived in Boston, had a lot of cold moments. And this was, this was like, I felt like I, I, I had nothing in my life that could compare me to how cold it was. And I don't know. I, I, I left there. I was like, wow. You know, they had a little yeah. downtown. It was very cute, but I was just like, "Wow, these people are better people yeah. than I am." I could not live here. It's, I'm just a weak the, person. The weather is exactly same as the North Pole. Only in the North Pole, the summers are better. Remember, <laughs> wow, summer. The summers in the Winnipeg are like all mosquitoes and black flies. There's no respite. It gets really, really hot, and then there's like an, an infestation, a biblical infestation. Uh, so no, it's, you're. If you you grow up there, you're tough. Right? You have to be. Harold Bob does not does not uh, does um, does not surprise me. Um, so the Warriors, you know, as a big picture story, um, with with the way they've reinvented things a little bit, I think people feel like this is replicable. And I've talked about this before about how no. what a fluke it is that Curry and Clay are on the same team. But yeah, I'm thinking long term. And how kids emulate what they see. And you think like Jordan, the way he played inspired basically two generations of people just trying to go one-on-one and be the hero, right? They all wanted to be Jordan. That's how you played. You just try to beat people off the dribble and um, your teammates were there, but not really. And Kobe was like a creation of uh, out of Jordan and everything he did. And he basically... Um, took everything that Jordan did that I liked and didn't like and magnified it and tried to be the, yeah. the bigger version of it. Now I wonder, is this going to happen with Curry and Clay? Are we just going to have this whole generation of kids who are in the gym all the time, taking 25, 30 footers, fallaways, heat check shots. And that's just where we're going. What do you think? Well, here's the, here's the question. And I don't know enough about basketball or kind of human physiology to know the answer, but what we're going to discover in the next 10 years is how uh, much of great shooting is innate and how much is practice. So clearly, you know, when people talk about how Curry's form is perfect, um, you know, from a kind of, uh, uh, if you kind of analyze it on a computer, you know, there's almost no better arc than he has, et cetera, et cetera. Some right. element of that is simply the way he's constructed. But some element of that is, as well is that People like Curry, I think, practice those kinds of long-range shots more than anyone, any previous generation of basketball player did. So now we have a whole cohort, a whole generation of young basketball players who are going to be practicing these kinds of shots to a degree that no one else did. And we're going to find out, is, this, is it kind of learnable, that kind of outside shooting? And maybe it is. You know, I would, be, I would really love to go back 20 years in you know, the great, three-point shooters of way back in the day and ask them, downtown Freddie Brown or, right. or Curry's dad, Del Curry, and, and compare their workout regimens, shooting regimens, to the current generation. I think, were they even doing anything close to what people are doing now? I support, give us some clue. I support anything 
that would lead you to track down downtown Freddie Brown. Um, but I, how many points do I get for for hauling downtown Freddie Brown out of the memory attic? It's that was, <laughs> to me, it's on the short list of of the greatest sports nicknames that ever happened. It rhymed. It's awesome. <laughs> You would, if you were writing a sports movie, you would have a character named Downtown Freddie Brown. It also described what he did. I like when nicknames describe what athletes actually are and what their specialty is. So, Downtown Freddie Brown, he made shots from downtown. You're not going to do better than that. Hey, quick break to talk about our friends at Slink TV. I really hope you didn't spend the NBA playoffs figuring out which of your friends will will invite you over to watch games or to save up to spend a wad of cash on drinks you could watch at a sports bar. Oh, And I really hope you didn't waste hours every night looking for a shady live stream like Gladwell would have 30 years ago. You had a better, cheaper option. Slink TV, the best way to watch live TV on your turf. For $20 a month, get more than 20 live channels, including ESPN and TNT, plus your favorite entertainment and news, AMC, CNN, Adult Swim, IFC, other top networks. You can also add on channel packs like the Sports Extra Package for just $5 a month extra. No installation, no extra gear, no annual contracts, and easy online cancellation. You just need an internet connection. You're ready to go. Start watching for seven days free at sling.com slash Bill Simmons. Get Sling TV on your favorite device. Restrictions apply. Here's my thought on three-pointers. The science is better. The science favors these guys. And and I I really think that's part of the reason why the old guys can't understand why these guys are such good shooters now. Because they can't wrap their heads around it. They, they just fundamentally don't, under, fundamentally don't understand it. And part of the reason these guys are so good is because, as we've discussed ad nauseum, the era-specific advantages. But, like, if you read about what Curry did to revamp his body, he every you know they, they, there was a great piece about this, I think on ESPN.com, like five, six months ago, about how he just kept having ankle problems. And they couldn't figure out how to stop him from having ankle problems. And they literally taught him or retaught him how to, how to kind of walk and run and how to put his weight correctly on, on certain parts of his body. They did all these exercises to train his legs to operate differently. And it saved this yeah. career because 30 to 40 years ago, he just would have been another guy that, that was like, oh, that guy was good and he got hurt. You know, he would have been Gus Johnson and he would have been Bill Walton and all these different people. And now you can save those guys physically and you can give them the science and the medicine and the training and the know-how to treat their body and to optimize it the best possible, most efficient way. 40 years ago, he just keeps getting hurt. And now he's Steph Curry. And I think that's the biggest difference now. What do you think? Yeah, that, that and so there's that. So what, what that's doing is it's expanding the pool of potential superstars, right? Yeah. So the pool used to not include all those who dropped out because of injury or what have you. Now the pool is just, I mean, it must be, I don't know what, how much it grows because of our um, increased sophistication in dealing with these kinds of uh, physical issues. But let's assume it's 25% larger. That's huge. Or even 10% larger. That's huge. The other thing I think is that um, in this kind of, going back to this question of weighing the relative contribution of nature and nurture. I kind of think that 25 years ago, people talked a lot more about natural shooters, and today they talk a lot more about trained shooters. That our expectation now is that shooting is is something that's much more amenable to practice than it would have been 30 years ago. 
I could be wrong, but that's my sort of, as I look at sort of, I think back to the way we thought about when we described um, basketball greatness back in the 80s. The, the language is different. Now yeah. there's a real expectation that, you know, these guys can dramatically improve their performance through um, kind of intelligent practice. Well, you think about, like, look at the guys that I grew up watching. A lot of them shot differently from each other. You know, you had guys like Jamal Wilkes, his shot, nobody has that shot now because in the 60s and 70s, you taught yourself how to shoot. You didn't have AAU. You weren't, you know, you weren't on some team when you were 10 years old with the coach being like, no, 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 release it from here. And now you have all these guys like, like to me, Steph is a, a freak for a million reasons. I don't think his shot is replicable. I think it's pretty actually unique from how fast his release is. It's just not common. I don't think a lot of people could imitate it. But Clay is like out of a great basketball shot factory. Like you watch Clay, it's just yeah. perfect. And it, it's like the yeah. same thing as I think Mike Miller was a guy like that. Um, the way Ray Allen shot, like there were certain guys that just kind of figured out the mechanics of how to shoot almost like a golf swing. And Clay is the personification of that. He's just, yeah. if you watch him, it's just perfect. Everything he does, how he can straighten his body. Curry's, Curry and Larry Bird are the only two people I've ever seen. Somebody told me this, and I was mad I didn't think of it first, so I apologize because I'm stealing this from somebody. But Curry and Bird, they could get, they could be on like the left side. They could get a pass from somebody at the top of the key and start their shot not being squared to the rim. Which is, you know, everybody else would have to get it, gather, turn, shoot. And Bird and, and Steph, and I'm sure there were one or two others, but those are the two that jumps out, were the only ones that could just shoot if you just spun them around blindfolded and they, and they would still be okay. Um, Clay is the more conventional, incredible, awesome shooter. And, like, you know, they know now. I, I thought one of the great things with Steph um, is for a superstar, he knows when to back off for his teammates which Bird was like that too, and Magic was like that, some of the greats, where Clay gets red hot. It's a closeout game for them, potentially where they might go home for the year. And Clay gets hot, and Steph just lets him do it. Steph yeah. wasn't like, yeah. no, no, now it's my turn. Steph's like, Clay's hot. <laughs> Let's ride Clay. This no, is great. Re- they're remarkably disciplined. You know, the, my favorite player on the Warriors is Sean Livingston. Yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of shooting form, has impeccable shooting form. Right. Um, but he still ugly again, but impeccable. Incredibly yeah. Incredibly disciplined. Never takes a shot he doesn't think he has a high percentage chance of making it. He never barely ever takes a three, right? I mean, for someone with such extraordinary gifts and such beautiful form, he is I mean, he shows incredible restraint as well. Something right. Not like freelancing out there. He's very good at knowing exactly what he's good at, which a lot of players aren't. You know, I was thinking, though, they they had the 40th anniversary of the Triple OT Sun-Celtics game, which I actually went to. I was six, but I fell asleep for, I think, most of the second half. Uh, yeah. But they showed it, and it's the, widely considered to be, like, the greatest, most dramatic game of all time. There's no three-point line on the court. And it was the first time I had seen a game from kind of the pre-three-point era in a long time. It's so weird. And everybody's goal in the game was so different than it is now. You know, everybody's just trying to get as close to the basket as they possibly can. It's very similar. Yeah. I've written about this to, to a hockey power play where yeah. 
in a power play, you're just trying to get closer and closer and put more people in front of the net and just just try to make the defense collapse on itself. And that's what basketball was for a long time. And now it's completely different. I can't remember maybe maybe football where it used to be ground and pound, run game, run game, and then all of a sudden passing opened it up and the sport completely changed. It, Wait, was it more or less entertaining? It was different. I don't I don't know. I guess it depends what you like. I think I think younger fans love the threes. I think that I think they're used to it. I think it's a little bit of the baseball home run mentality. I don't know. There's something to be said for the way some of those '80s team played and you know low post players. We did a test show yesterday with Roy Hibbert, and we were just talking about like how he everyone three years ago was saying like what he brought to the table was the model for this is verticality defense. This is where defense is going. And now the sport has completely changed. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to have to start my own league with Dwight Howard and some of these other guys. Like, they don't need centers anymore. Uh, it's very strange. shoot threes off them. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, That's interesting. When you, when you watched uh, OKC Golden State, did, is, Adams, is Adams everything you wanted from a basketball player? Is like 90% of what you wanted? I, I, you know, I've been dutifully been listening to all your to your pods and watching the games. And I, I, you know, I know that you've become incredibly enthusiastic about him. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, again, I'm unconvinced by him. I, what? You know, he's having, he had a great series, but what, what about, I mean, I don't understand why this, all of us, this team had a mediocre season for the level of talent they have. Yeah, they had 55 they had wins. Two. two great, two really great players, but I don't even think that they fit together terribly well. Um, I'm, I think they have one transcendent player, Kevin Durant, and a, a kind of uncategorizable player in Westbrook. Yeah. The rest of the team is just—it's just not—it's just not, not interesting. I mean, Sean Livingston, to mention him again, is a guy who doesn't start for Golden State. He would be the third best player on OKC. Am I wrong? I think Adams is the third best player. I, I actually think really? he's I think he might be the best center in the league and I'm never gonna I will never understand why he didn't play more of those last few games. Especially game seven, because they'd kind of figured out the kryptonite for the Warriors, which was length. You know, Draymond had to spend so much time keeping Adams away from the rim those couple of games. And I actually went back, I looked at the box scores, I was studying the plus minus the plus minus didn't really reflect what I thought Adams' impact was like when I was watching the game, which is part of why I don't totally trust plus minus because I thought what he brought to the table was, one, he was protecting the rim and and the Warriors kind of had to think because he'll just he'll clobber somebody who doesn't care. Like Anytime you're playing at somebody like that who might hurt you, it's in your head. Um, but then he just put so much pressure on Draymond for Draymond to keep him away from the basket. And it made the Warriors, the Warriors had to start playing Bogut. They had to do things that they didn't totally love doing to try to neutralize his effectiveness. And in game seven, I just would have gone down in flames with Adams. And I, you know, and they basically picked Robertson over Adams because they couldn't have two guys who couldn't shoot out there at the same time. I would have, I don't know, Robertson, Robertson played, uh, played very well. But if I'm the Warriors, I'd rather have him out there than, than Adams. Because Adams, I didn't have a matchup for. Adams was like the guy that I'm secretly hoping never comes on the court. 
And that was my takeaway. I wonder if Oklahoma City did it over again. Would they play the same lineups the same way? How would they account for the Iggy covering Durant thing? I'm sure that that series, they, they got to just be thinking about it over and over again because I do wonder if they were better. I don't know. Yeah. It's a great, it's one of the all time great series. It really is. It's. I think it, it, we'll it be really talking is. about I mean, it for a long time. The fact that we're halfway into the finals and we're still talking about the semifinals. Um, I well, will say that one, the one thing that your, your ringer column on Durant convinced me is he has to leave. I honestly don't think he should stay in OKC. It's, it's just too brutal. The, the lesson of this of this season for him is, if I want to w- win a ring, it's it's not happening in the West, right? It's yeah. too hard. I mean, it's it's a harder path. I don't know. After I wrote the column, I was saying, <laughs> I don't, not changing my mind, but they were so close. I think you have to stay. I think you have to risk it, even though he's got a pin in his foot and he had three surgeries. They were so close, I mean, you know, and they, and and. I mean, this, was, the, the reason people give for, uh, and this I think was the most crucial point that you made in that, um, in that KD piece. The reasons people, the rational case for him staying is, oh, he's trying to sign a short-term deal. He can get way more money if he goes and is a free agent, whatever next next year or the year after. Yeah. But the problem is that his off-court money is now so large with his shoe deals, that that's his, the money he's getting from OKC, from basketball, isn't necessarily the most important economic driver in his decision-making. And yes. that's a really interesting... This, I think, is a fact that's changing sports in a way that's underappreciated. That when you have situations when stars are making way more money off the court than on the court, that fundamentally changes the logic of their decision-making about where they want to play. I mean, this you could is... make a case. You could make a case hypothetically. Imagine you said to Kevin Durant, um, "Would you, uh, if I could give you a hundred percent certainty that you could win a title in the next two years, would you accept, from an economic standpoint, would you accept an NBA salary of zero? And I think you could make a very strong case that he would make more money um, off. He would make so much more money off the court after winning a title that he would." could rationally accept an NBA salary at zero. I have, a, I have, a, I rarely have an awesome point, but I think I have an awesome point on this, but we have to talk about five, four club because I, I know you're busy. You might be busy like I'm me. Busy, Bill. You might be launching a TV show. You might've launched a website. You don't have any time to shop, uh, whether it's for the office, the club, soccer tournament, dinner event, doesn't matter. You just don't have the time. Um, Maybe you're just lazy as hell. Some people are just lazy. Some people just don't like shopping. Do you like shopping? I don't like shopping, Bill. I don't either. Thanks for thanks for playing off me on these. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, 5-4 Club has you covered. They provide styling advice and recommendations. They'll make you a styling profile. They'll deliver clothes to your door every month. Four style profiles. Classic casual forward mix. Free shipping. Direct delivery to your doorstep. Clothes come every month or so. It's only $60 a month. Go to 54club.com. That's, uh, you got to spell that out, 54club.com. Use promo code BS at sign up. Get 50% off your first package. $120 worth of clothing for $30 for your first month's package. All right, speaking of money. So this is the curry part. You just tapped into something that's super important. I was looking at the, at the salaries. 
The worry, the Warriors' best advantage over anything is the fact what they're paying Curry. All right, so you know the Warriors' highest paid players? Clay Thompson. Fifteen. They pay Clay and Draymond a combined thirty million. They pay Bogut twelve million. They play Iguodala eleven point seven million, and they play Steph Curry eleven point three million. He's the fifth highest paid guy on his team. On the other side, LeBron makes twenty three, Love makes nineteen point five, Irving makes fourteen point seven, and Tristan Thompson makes fourteen point two. Tristan Thompson makes more than Steph Curry. Iman Shumpert makes nine. Channing Fry makes seven point eight. Their top six guys make like, I don't know, 20, 25 million more than, than the Warriors' top five guys, something like that. Um, but the Warriors have Livingston at 5.5. They got Harrison Burns on a rookie contract. And so they just lucked out to some degree with this Curry thing because I don't know if they would have been able to afford to keep Draymond and Clay under these current seller cap rules, right? They, they would have had some yeah. trouble. Um, and then on top of it, Normally, this would be a giant issue, but as you just pointed out, Curry makes so much money off the court, it's actually great for him. You could argue that by taking a lesser salary, like let's say he made $17 million, so it's an extra $6 million bucks, right? Your agent gets 10%. Uncle Sam gets 50%. So by, so by the time you're pocketing an extra like $3 million, $2.7 million by the time everything's said and done, or... You're on a 73-win team making $11 million a year. I'm pretty sure you can make that up with commercials. So in a weird way, even though I'm sure this isn't his intention, in a weird way, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to him. I think he makes over $30 million bucks now in off-the-court endorsements. It's something like that. LeBron yeah. makes 35. And these NBA salaries, like, you know, I don't know if the if the price tag matters like it did 30 years ago. What do you think of that? Income here. There's the court income and the off the court income. They're both increasing, but the question is: is one increasing faster than the other? So we know that with the salary cap going up, the on court money is going up quite substantially. But if you're in the the kind of A list sport, which is basketball, and you're handsome and charming and really unusual, you're you have to think that the trajectory of your off court money is higher than than your basketball money right so it makes i don't think this i don't think in other words that that curry's calculus should change if he's a completely rational actor he should say i will i cannot make a basketball salary that in any way impairs my team's ability to win yeah but he won't do that it's that's such a hard thing to do is from an ego standpoint to accept that i I mean, Brady's been doing it. Brady, this Brady never got enough credit for this with the Patriots. He's always taken, I would say, the last six, seven, eight years, he's taken less than he could have. You know, he took, yeah. especially like the last couple of years, I think he was making like 10. And Manning was always ta- making, you know, 16, 17, 18, whatever. But the fact that they had a player who was willing to sacrifice that, who saw the big picture, was a big part of the reason why the Patriots were able to always get one or two extra players, trade back for picks, all the things that they love to do. I wonder, like, you know, when you think about, like, something like Carmelo did, right? 
he took, he grabbed money early. It was a five-year, like $110 million deal. He just grabbed it. It didn't make the team really any better. Um, it didn't set him up for the long term. Like, that's the one where I, I scratch my head and wonder who's in your life. You know, he could have yeah. gone short term and just waited for, you know, tried to win, like done a whole bunch of other things. But I do think, though, that that uh, Curry is positioned to make more money off the court this summer if they win again than anybody we've seen since Jordan. Because I think he's the most yeah. popular basketball player we've had since Jordan, right? You don't think LeBron and Kobe have ever reached the level that Curry's hit. Do you? I think that he'll never. No, no, he'll never. He'll never do this. But can you imagine, just from a standpoint of establishing, permanently establishing, a kind of uh, persona and identity, identity for you in the broader culture? Imagine if the, in the off season Curry said, uh, for the next uh, three years, I want the minimum. Oh wow! Tear up my contract. So now, does he make? Does he make that money back on the outside after doing that? Absolutely, right? All of a sudden, he becomes the most interesting athlete in America. You know, you know what the you know what the analogy? It's a very, very stre- stretched and poor analogy. But think about what the long-term impact of Ali's principled stand on the Vietnam War was. You have one of the greatest athletes of his day, one of the, one of the most popular athletes in the world, goes to prison on a matter of principle at the height of his powers. At the time, that seems like an, you know, a devastating, the worst possible thing an athlete could do, toss away his best years. But on the other hand, it, that decision permanently elevates him above all other athletes, right? But he becomes someone that we respect for reasons far above the normal reasons we respect athletes. He becomes a kind of moral figure. And I, I've always been... You know, first of all, I cannot imagine another contemporary athlete making the same kind of decision. It's almost impossible to imagine somebody doing the same thing today. But secondly, I'm on a lesser level, I'm always amazed that so few athletes don't make some version of that same calculus to say, um, if I want to be a major cultural figure, then some kind of sacrifice is not a bad thing, right? Did... Ali never actually went to prison, right? He was going like it was because I've heard both versions of this and I used to know things like this and I can't remember what actually happened. Anymore. I don't think he actually went to prison. I think he was, you know, going headed to prison before a couple, before, you know, before the appeals and all that he, stuff. How happened. many years he loses? Yeah, he lost though, four years. years. No, it's, you're a hundred percent right. It, it would never happen yeah. today. And I think the difference between what, Ali did and what his era was versus the era now. The guys, the way they think now, they don't think about like broad cultural impact and 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 that kind of thinking. They think more about like business brand impact. And yeah. like Jordan's been a bigger influence to those guys than Ali was. Um, and yeah. I'm not saying you know I don't blame them. I'm not putting them down for it. It's just it's a fact. Like these guys all want to be multimedia companies. They want to start. You know, they like LeBron has that uninterrupted and he has a deal with Warner Brothers and he's involved with Space Jam. And like, that's where his head's at. Um, Carmelo wants to be Carmelo Inc. Kobe's Kobe Inc. He wants to sell stories and do that, you know, tell stories and do documentaries and films, all this stuff. And that's kind of where the headspace has gravitated for these guys. And whether it's a bad thing or a good thing, I I don't think it's for either of us to say. But but yeah, yeah. but no, it isn't. Um, But in Ali's era, Somebody said this, 
I, you know, there are so many great things written about him in the last week. I can't remember who said this, but, um, Ali was one of the few people who survived the sixties and still kind of, he almost like became bigger in the seventies a lot. You know, there, he had all these people in the sixties that fought for certain things and, um, stood up for certain things. And then by the time like 1975 rolled around, either they were dead or they had lost their luster or they had sold out. And Ali was kind of the only one who gained steam. I'm sure there were a couple other people, but I thought that was a really good way to put it. Like he kind of belonged to two different decades in a completely different ways. And that's one of the many reasons he was the greatest. And he's the last, he's really the last boxer to have a truly international profile. I mean, he was the most popular athlete in the world and for a period. And I don't think, was there a boxer post Ali who was even in the top 25 most popular athletes in the world? I think Sugar Ray Leonard was. Sugar Ray Leonard was. People people forget how big Sugar Ray Leonard was. Yeah, Sugar Ray Leonard was 1976 gold medalist, um, won the title from Benitez. He wasn't big internationally. The thing about Ali is he was, you could go, you know, almost anywhere in the world and people knew who he was. I mean, he was a, he was an international celebrity the way only soccer players are now. Whereas Sugar Ray was big in America, but I can't imagine that if he had gone to Nigeria in 1978, they would have known who Sugar Ray was. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm always amazed by how popular the uh, the soccer players compared are compared. Like somebody like Ronaldo, I think he's got like yeah. uh, uh, over 100 million fans on Facebook, like 60 million on Instagram, and you know, you like these numbers that have no correlation with any professional athletes that we have and it is increasingly it's increasingly weird to me I mean, america is this american canada are these bizarre outliers when it comes to soccer yeah everyone else is crazy about it and somehow we've some i don't know how we've avoided the kind of fascination the rest of the world has with soccer it's coming i i think a lot of the groundwork has been laid and you've seen it. I think it's completely different than it was seven, eight years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, did people even know the Champions League final happened? You know, yeah. now I feel like this year I felt like most of the people I know at least know it happened. I don't know how many of them watched it, but, uh, you know, it does seem like a baby steps thing. I still think it, it's not really going to have the dramatic, um, bomb level impact until we have a great American player. Cause that's just how yeah. Americans roll. We let, we like to be the best we want. If we need tiger or we need, uh, Ali or we need Michael Jordan for soccer. And that's what will make the difference. I think. Yeah. You don't think so? See how long that takes. <laughs> remember there was, remember Freddie, Freddie Abu. He was supposed to be the next. Uh, Freddie, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Freddie, I do. I do. That's right. Hold on one more. Uh, quick break to talk about simply safe it's summertime guess what burglary skyrocket over the summer did you know that burglary sky summer is the worst time for burglars because people go away uh protecting your home and family can't wait i worked with simply safe to put together a massive security arsenal uh, a special package handpicked by me entry sensors motion sensors glass break everything you need to stop criminals from touching your home if a burglar so much as tries to break in an ear-shattering siren will let him know police are already on their way. 
24-7 monitoring, $14.99 a month. They will never lock you in a long-term contract. You have a 60-day money-back guarantee. No reason to try it today. And right now, if you try it, $100 off my hand-picked security package. Go to simplysafebill.com. It's possibly the best home security deal you'll ever see. When you read all these Ali things, uh, I'm sure you read a bunch of them over the last five days. And then I found out that, you know, it seemed like everybody was writing about it. It was the biggest story, all that. And then I heard uh, my old friend Dan Lebetard on ESPN Radio yesterday. He was saying that Kimbo Slice death had gotten to that point. This was yesterday morning. 1.6 million views on ESPN.com. It actually got more traffic than Muhammad Ali's death did the wow. piece where he died on ESPN.com. And it, yeah. and it got me wondering if people are under 40 what do they even think of Ali? Because they weren't there. They're just, it's just other people telling them stories about how great Ali was and YouTube clips and all this stuff. Yeah. I barely made it. Like I, I, I first remember Ali in 74 from Wide World of Sports and I was kind of there for the tail end of the prime and then at the slow fade. But I felt it. I was there. I love the guy. He was, you know, he was like he, probably the first athlete out of Boston, non-Boston that I ever loved. When you, yeah. the under 40 people, what do you think they think of Ali? I think with that, Ali is one of the, as an example of an athlete that I think you, you actually had to have seen him, not just box, because he was such a unusual and unique boxer, but also in his prime talking. I mean, you, we forget what, an, what a hilarious and magnetic um, public figure he was. He was on, there was a clip, he was on the Dick Cavett show. Of yeah. course, the under 40 has no idea who Dick Cavett is either, but I mean, this is a guy who would go on kind of intellectual talk shows, not just hold his own, but be hilarious, you know, do those crazy poems, you know, make fun of his host. I mean, so like, if you witness that kind of um, performance art, then you were a fan for life. But what, if you came along too late, what you saw was, you know, Ollie with Parkinson's, this kind of diminished man. It was just a little bit of spark left. But, it, you know, even, I remember there's a restaurant in, it's no longer there, but in Manhattan, that in the, men, in, the, in, the, in the men's bathroom, they had a picture, that famous picture of Ali in his prime, taken at the bottom of a pool. Did you ever see that one? Yeah. Yeah. It's like one of the iconic, and you look at him, and he is about as, beautiful a physical specimen as you've ever seen yeah and it's like that is the ali you had to have witnessed in order to be a fan and if you can't because so much of so much of ali was so much in the moment and if you didn't catch him in the moment i don't know whether you you'll ever get the magic yeah i did uh we had max kellerman on the test show i did yesterday and max is 43 and i'm 46 and I think the cutoff is 45. I think if you were born after 1970, you missed it because Max's first memory, Max loves boxing more than both of us. Um, his first memory was Ali in decline, you know, and, and that yeah. started like around 76, you know, and, and then headed into the Spinks fight and then tragically the Holmes fight, which is still one of the worst sporting moments of all time. But he missed the, the Zaire Manila part which I'm yeah. old enough to remember like when he beat Frazier, when they came on a wild world of sports and they talked about it, when he would come on wild world of sports all the time, like he was the star of wild world of sports. And 
so I get it. Like he, he, if you were a little kid, he just won you over. And as you said, like he was the most handsome, he's probably, probably the most handsome, famous athlete we've ever had. He's at least in the top three. Um, and the funniest. He was the funniest athlete we've ever had. I think him and Barkley are in the finals. I think he wins four games to one. I think Barkley wins game three. <laughs> Barkley just says something <laughs> hilarious in game three. He might might steal game three, but Ali wins four games to one. Um, he was the best interview of any athlete we've ever had. Has there ever been a better interview than Muhammad Ali? As you pointed out, he can go to the Dick Cavett show. Nobody else could do that. And the way he won over all these sports writers, and they all wrote over the last six days, like guys age, age range 45 to 90. Roger Angel wrote a piece about Ali. You know, he, he just, I don't think we'll see it again. And the Jordan thing. That's great. By the way, you're leaving out one thing. And a great dresser. Oh, she yeah. was like, I mean, in the, in the greatest of 70s, you know, tradition, I mean, he was like, no, the man, he was a, he was a five-tool player. <laughs> yeah. And cared about uh, the right things. I, you know, he yeah. he take he's going to take some hits historically, and he already did for for uh, some of the stuff he pulled with Frazier, uh, which was really terrible in retrospect. And y- you could, you know, HBO did this in the Ghost of Manila's documentary. They they, uh, you know, they spun it. They made Frazier the hero, and they made Ali the villain. And there's a way you can do it. Like he. He turned Frazier, you know, Ali basically said it. He's, this is, you, if you root for Frazier, you're rooting for Uncle Tom. If you root for me, you're rooting for Black America. And positioned yeah. it in a way that just wasn't fair in any way, shape, or form to Frazier, who, you know, grew up in the worst possible situation in Philly and um, and and hated okay. Ali, hated Ali until the yeah. bitter end. You know, really genuinely hated him for the stuff he said. Um, at the same time, like, I think I have a tough time sometimes judging people that were saying and doing things in the late sixties and early seventies by the standards we have now, you know, I, I think in 2016, Ollie's not saying that stuff. And I, and I, I'm sure in the last part of his life, he had to have really regretted it. Right. No, it's, I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah. We, it's a, that, that period, Ali happens to overlap with, uh, his, Athletic career overlaps with the most tumultuous, you know, fifteen-year stretch of the twentieth century. In terms yes, of, um, it's just like so. It's like everything is hopelessly jumbled and mixed up with, um, you know, civil rights, then Vietnam War, and then, I mean, it's a lot. Like the guerrilla stuff that he did is just awful when you watch it now. When I was a kid, I thought it was funny. I was like, "Oh, look at Ali punch that doll. This is hilarious." You know, and now you look at it and it's just awful. Like you cringe and, you know, I, people didn't bring up a lot of that stuff, but Ali had warts like everybody else. Like, you know, he certainly had a romantic warts. He was, he was, uh, he was, he was available. Um, you know, he had his flaws, but he certainly, to me, I, I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. And I don't think, you know, who, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but same era of transcendent athletes. When I was doing my podcast episode on Rick Barry and Will Chamberlain, I went back and read all this with Chamberlain stuff. And, you know, it made me think that Will Chamberlain may well have been the most extraordinary. If you just talk, if you just talk about um, uh, physical athletic ability, 
on yeah. a, in the broadest possible sense of that word. I don't know whether anyone has ever will ever come close to Will Chamberlain. I didn't understand. I had forgotten the fact that he was this. He could potentially have been a world class uh, track athlete. Yeah, I mean, there's he, he was. He's essentially. He's not. I mean, he's seven. Whatever he is, one or two. But he's he's essentially a, a six foot two guy with an extra foot. There's no. He doesn't pay any penalties for his size. So he's just as nimble and coordinated and fast. And I mean, he's just unbelievable. And his strength is particularly at a time before people when people weren't doing advanced weight training and all the stuff we do now. The guy's unreal. Yeah. I, the guys I from that era said the, they they said he was like so much stronger than everybody else. Like it was a joke. Like he he was the, not human. Yeah, he's the only player from that era who I think you could you could plunk him down in the uh, in the contemporary NBA and he'd still be a star. I don't think it's. I think right. I I I'd still have my money on Bill Russell as well in that conversation. I think he just yeah, would he be, would have been the greatest small ball great. center ever. It's um, a very, very small list. Yeah, I think the thing with Will was he was so far ahead of everyone else who played that position in the moment that now if you see the clips, it's like, oh, yeah, we had other guys like that. But in the moment, there was nobody like that. It wasn't even – I mean, he was going against these six eight guys. <laughs> he was. Just, I had a couple – the NBA got me a couple of the tapes of his games. I remember I saw one that was like a 78-point game or a 73-point game or something. And it almost didn't seem fair. It seemed like they'd put an adult in a high school game. That's how yeah. that's how you dominant wonder, he was. But also, you, you you remember how hard it must have been for him to stay motivated in those games. So he's putting up those kinds of extraordinary numbers, you know, in a in a setting where he may have been coasting half the time. For all we know, right? Greatest athletes we ever had. Ali won. Who's two for you? In let's say our lifetime. Let's go nineteen sixty on. Who's second? Oh, wow. Any sport? Um, I think Carl Lewis. Uh, I like you always go track. Tough. I love when you go track. I can't. Carl I Lewis track. might be the answer too. Carl Lewis is a, is is an unreal athlete. I mean, he. Re- I mean, he's sort of off the charts in many ways. Uh, but uh, would I go? I I go. I put Will in my top five. Ali, Will, Carl Lewis. Uh, Gretzky, Gretzky has to be up there. I mean, Gretzky's is like an order of magnitude better than anyone else in his peer group. I would have um, if the if the criteria is how far ahead of you were versus everyone you were playing against. Um, Bobby Orr has to be in the top five because if you just watch those clips, oh. it's the same kind of Will Chamberlain thing. You're like, wow, this guy, this isn't fair. Is he using different skates? He's <laughs> so fast, and he hurt his knees almost immediately, and it's. It's basically what we were talking about the Steph Curry thing before about different era. Bobby Orr plays for 20 years and there's no conversation about who the greatest hockey player has ever. It's just Bobby Orr. It's like no defenseman ever did this. And he has knee injuries basically from his third or fourth year on and uh, and is out of the league in 10 years. You know? I did. It's funny. I did this with, because I'm obsessed with running, with running. And I forget why, but I... I asked about 10 running experts who were the greatest never wases in running. Yeah. And it's all these same stories. So particularly 15, 
20, 25 years ago, before we had all this advanced sports medicine. There's a whole category of runners who are amazing until, you know, through 18, 19, 20, they're just off the charts. And then they get an injury and never recover. And, like, the list is insanely long. There's all these guys, you look back in the 70s, these guys that, you know, as high school seniors in Minnesota run some time that just blows your mind, and then they vanish because they get an injury that today we would have dealt with in two months, and that it was a career ender back in the day. But you could go across, there's just so many people like that in the, in the previous generation. In basketball, I, I have an answer to yeah, when I did my when I redid the Hall of Fame, I had a whole wing for the what if guys because there's so many of them in hoops. It's just so easy. Like you break your foot, tear your knee, do it. You hurt your back. One, Which one? But I forgot. I forgotten that list. Who was on that list? Uh, there's so many. I mean, Walton is probably the greatest what if of all time because he's probably one of yeah. the ten best players ever if he can just stay in the floor. Uh, Len Bias is way Bias. up there. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the guys from the cocaine era, for a variety of reasons, yeah. whether they were on cocaine or not, but that generation, like Bernard King and Michael Ray Richardson, people like that, there were a lot of those. Everyone said Gus Johnson was amazing, and and uh, I think he blew out like his patella tendon. Elgin Baylor is another one. Elgin, everybody said, was like the first guy who was who was vertical and hurt his Wait, knee. Elgin Baylor, I didn't realize his career was was cut short by. Oh yeah, he he had by his sixth year he had like a ravaged knee. He was playing on one leg. Yeah, he only, I think he only had like maybe four years before his body yeah. broke down. He blew out his knee and and he was never the same. Wilt, somebody that people said was never quite the same after he blew out his knee. I think in nineteen seventy, he never never moved quite the same. Yeah. But there there's been a bunch of them. And you know, I forgot to say this when we were talking about Curry and how guys prepare for themselves. Now, I. I just by chance spent some time with uh, Maverick Carter a couple weeks ago, who's LeBron's business partner. Uh-huh. And we've had kind of a love-hate relationship. He feels that way. I've, I've never really felt that way, but I think he feels like we have a love-hate relationship because he always brings it up. But um, he, uh, I asked him, like, what's the biggest misconception about LeBron? What's the one thing people don't realize about LeBron? And he said, people don't realize how hard he works on his body. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, LeBron spends like a million and a half dollars a year on his body. I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, he has, he's replicated the gym that whatever team, whether it's Miami or Cleveland, he's replicated all the equipment they have in the team's gym in his house. He has two trainers Everywhere he goes, he has a trainer with him. I'm 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 paraphrasing what he told me, so I might not be getting all these facts right. He's got chefs. Um, he has all the science of how to sleep, all these different things, masseuses. Everything he does in his life is constructed to have him play basketball and to stay in the court and to be as healthy yeah. as possible and to absorb punishment when he goes into the basket and gets crushed by people. Now think about what an advantage that is compared to what the guys had 40 years ago when, yeah. you know, you basically Dave Cowens just puts on his converses, does a couple stretches, ducks some secondhand cigarette smoke and he goes out and then he rides coach and LeBron is, has just created this whole life to survive an NBA season and a playoff series. And it's like, I don't think he's missed a playoff game. 
He's played 13 years. He never missed a playoff game. He's played like almost 200 playoff games. He's, it is kind of unbelievable. The resume he's putting together is unlike anything anyone's ever done. It really is. It's It has no parallel. Even somebody like Kobe, um, you know, missed games and got hurt and had bad seasons and missed the playoffs and had years where he didn't even have to play a playoff game. LeBron's been in the at least in the second, third round for 12 straight years. He's always had to play eight months. You know? Do you think he can, will ever win another title in Cleveland? I think Kevin Love will be the fall guy this year. Um, what about Love for Mello? What do you, what's your take on that suggestion from Ringer yesterday? I loved it. You know, I love hypothetical fake trades. Uh, Lala wears the pants in that family. She's not living in Cleveland. That's not happening. I, I don't think Carmelo goes anywhere. I think they like being in New York. I think he wants to be in the Knicks. Uh, I think love going to Boston is more realistic. Or maybe, you know, somebody who has the type of assets. But I think LeBron gives this one more year. And if it doesn't work, I don't know. But remember, he picked all the players. It's yeah. it's He's the one who said, you know, $82 million for Tristan Thompson. They had the same agent. He was involved in that. Like they don't sign Iman Trumpert for forty million bucks if he doesn't, if he doesn't kind of nod his head. Nobody, they're not putting together that team without soliciting his input. Like it's just not realistic. So I don't know. I would say he comes back for one more year. I think loves the fall guy, and I know nothing. I'm just talking out of my ass right now. <laughs> I'm qualified for a twenty. I'm qualified for a daily sports show. Uh, don't, what do you think happens? Um, I was so uh, tantalized by that suggestion of mellow for love. Maybe it'll um, happen. I don't want to ruin it for you. Maybe it might happen. I'm not. I'm not saying it'll no, never happen. Well, I don't like mellow. I, 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 I. One of my many, one of my few objections to your book of basketball was I thought you put him way too high, and I think there's almost no athlete on your top 100 list who has fallen further since you wrote the book than mellow. I, I just think he's. He's not interested in in being a great player. I mean, part of being a great player is understanding where you can achieve your greatness, right? Yeah. What sort of setting will bring out the best? And he's completely indifferent to that. Um, he should have left New York a long time ago. And he doesn't. He just. I don't know. It's just, I find it frustrating to have someone with that level of of of, of basketball ability who's just um, who I don't know. Is, it, is indifferent the right word? I. If he, he should be asking the question, where can I win a title? They should have asked that three Two years year. ago, right? He should have gone to Chicago. Yeah. And probably, and that would have been really interesting to see how that played out. I, there's a scenario and it's been rumored and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's the same kind of rumor circles that in 2008, people started rumoring that all these guys were going to end up on the same team, LeBron and Wade, and all those guys, and then it actually happened. So I feel like I feel obligated to mention it. Um, I do think there's a possibility that LeBron will finish. I, I think he's at the tail end of his prime right now. So maybe we'll call it the back nine. We we'll use a golf analogy. He's probably on like hole 13 right now, maybe hole 14. Who knows? I could see him finishing the last few holes with the people from his generation and doing it that way. And just being like, I'm with Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul and Carmelo and Joe Johnson. And it's just all his dudes. It's just like, this is, you know, I had a great career. This is how I'm going to go out with all my friends. I can see that happening. The geriatric 
Yeah. It's just like we're we're the old dudes. We're gonna we're just gonna we're gonna get together. We're all boys. We all have each other's back. And this is how I'm gonna spend the last few years of my career. I could see that happening yeah. after 2017. But you know what killed him? Is the Sports Illustrated letter. It bound him to Cleveland. Because he can't leave now. He'd seem like such a hypocrite and such a dick, right? To this whole thing of Cleveland, it's time for me to come home. And then it's like, all right, guys, I'll see you later. <laughs> I'm going to LA. It's nice a word there. See you guys. So I don't know. I think he's stuck. He has to convince Lala. He has to convince Chris Paul. He has to get all the guys from his generation. All right, can you plug your podcast? Yes. One more time. What's the title? Revisionist History on the Panoply Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your uh, podcasts, 10 episodes. Uh, I don't know. Sign up now. You subscribe I, I now. Yeah, help them get subscribe to number now. one on iTunes. Uh, thanks to Simply Safe. Remember, burglaries skyrocketed over the summer. I worked with Simply Safe to put together a phenomenal security package with entry, sensor, entry sensors, motion sensors, and glass break. Right now, get $100 off my handpicked security package. Go to simplysafebill.com. Thanks to Sling TV. Remember, no installation, no extra gear, no annual contracts, no BS. All you need is an internet connection. You could be watching more than 20 live channels, including ESPN and TNT. Seven-day free trial, sling.com slash Bill Simmons for the best of live TV on your favorite device. Restrictions apply. Thanks again to 5-4 Club, $60 a month, high-end clothing membership that will provide you and Malcolm Gladwell with stylish clothes that are bound to make you stand out in the crowd. Go to 54club.com, use promo code BS at sign up, 50% off your first package. That's $120 worth of clothing for $30 for your first month's package. I'm just sending you 5-4 Club stuff, Gladwell. Thanks again to HBO for launching my new TV show. Any given Wednesday on June 22nd, you may have seen the promo seven too many times. Uh, I think we have a new promo coming out. Thank God. Don't forget about After the Thrones on HBO Now. And don't forget about TheRinger.com. Have you gone to The Ringer? I, no one loves The Ringer more than me. Oh, good. You're happy with The Ringer so far. Oh, I love it. Oh, Great. I, love it. I, just want, I want more long articles is what I want. But no, I'm loving it. We'll get there. I mean, the thing is, we just launched. We're going to hire more people. We're going to have a bigger staff. We we were able to launch with more people than than I had hoped for. But, you know, it's it's a marathon, and not a put, sprint. And when the ringer puts ESPN out of business, Dan, I'll be the happiest oh, of all. That was so sweet of you. We just want to <laughs> coexist with a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, as always, a, a pleasure. When, do you have a book Thanks coming so. out or no? Nothing? Just a podcast podcast for now um book is next but that'll be a couple of years a couple of years but okay i've been bitten by the podcast bug. i know you it's love so podcasts it's great all right thank you buddy okay Bye-bye, anytime y'all want to see me again rewind this track right here close your eyes and picture me rolling